Welcome to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. My name is Jeff Milo and joining me on the podcast today is Mohsen Hamid, the author of the international bestsellers Exit West and The Reluctant Fundamentalist. Both of those books were finalists for the Man Booker Prize, but he's also won awards for previous books like Moth Smoke. Hamid grew up between the United States and Pakistan, eventually educated at Princeton University and Harvard Law School, and then relocated to London, where he really began to flourish his career as a novelist, particularly breaking through with The Reluctant Fundamentalist and How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia. The latter book came out in 2013, and he followed that up with a work titled Exit West in 2017, which tapped into magical realism, or perhaps fantasy or speculative fiction, or maybe even a little bit of science fiction is involved in that story, which is a love story between two people who are living in an unnamed city that happens to be experiencing a civil war, and the way in which they flee is using a system of magical doors that lead to different locations around the globe. Hamid's latest book, The Last White Man, is about Anders, who wakes up one morning to find himself transformed. Overnight, his skin has turned dark, and the reflection in the mirror seems a stranger to him. At first, he shares his secret only with Una, an old friend who has turned into a new lover. But soon, reports of similar events begin to surface. Across the land, people are awakening in new incarnations, uncertain how their neighbors, friends, and family will greet them now with darker skin. Some see the transformation as the long-dreaded overturning of the established order that must be resisted to a bitter end, which leads to lots of turmoil and even rioting in the streets. For others like Anders' father and Una's mother, there's a sense of profound loss and unease, and you see the different ways in which Una's mother and Anders' father, the older generation, grapple with this. And then we see the love story between Anders and Una begin to flourish, their connection deepens, change takes on a different shading, a chance at a, a kind of rebirth, an opportunity to see ourselves face to face anew. I think there's some profound things going on in this book, ruminations on equity and the growing pains of societal change and I guess maybe the shift of generations. But uh, as I talk with uh, Mohsen Hamid about this, we, we wind up in a very hopeful place at the end of the conversation. And I was really appreciative to have him on the podcast. So here is our chat. I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well. I I read your book Exit West and I have never been able to forget it. It's been one of my favorite books of the decade. Wow, um, thank you. And I've been so I've been looking forward to this book and I'm looking forward to the chance to chat with you. Uh I cannot resist uh diving in, you know, referring to something that lots of reviewers will inevitably refer to it and that is the comparison to the metamorphosis and my thought here was that 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 might be inspired only simply because there is the decision to uh make it uh, let's say uh, anders w- awakens on page one it really is not a spoiler at all it is right there on page one that anders awakens this way i just was curious about your decision to uh not really beat around the bush and just get right to it it's interesting. I think that um, you establish a relationship with a reader uh, at the beginning of a book. 
um, and you say, you know, this is what this is what kind of book this is going to be. Uh, so if you were to proceed with a particular kind of book and then suddenly spring Anders's change on the reader, uh, chapter two, chapter three, there's, I think, a much bigger risk that the re- reader wouldn't come along with you. Mm-hmm. But if you begin uh, with change, then the reader begins with you like that. Mm-hmm. In the same way that if you meet somebody in a bar, they have a strange accent or they have a peculiar sense of humor. Um, if you see it right up in the beginning of the encounter, and you choose to see, uh, to keep speaking with them, you're comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. It suddenly happens half an hour into your conversation, you think something weird is going on. <laughs> Truly. Uh, and can you talk about the creative process for this book? Uh, I don't know if I'm misinterpreting this, but what I found to be impactful about the way that sentences are structured uh, continuously, uh, frenetically, although still calmly paced, but just kind of in this nigh run-on style, it that for me seemed to represent Anders and everyone's inner panic in a way. But could you speak to that as well? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's, that's very close to what I intended. Um, uh, uh, almost more than inner panic, though, I would say, um, inner sense of flux. Uh, so the way the sentences in the book work is that... Um, there's, there's two th- different things going on. One is, in, in sentences, we move between points of view within the same sentence. So we'll be, Anders going to meet his father, and then we're thinking about Anders' father meeting Anders, and then we're looking out and sort of zooming from an omniscient point of view, looking at both of them. And all that's happening in one sentence. And so part of what is being done there is the reader is becoming comfortable with the idea of perspective changing, of, of there being a kind of fluid, fluid point of view. And then in each sentence, what tends to happen is, you know, something is said and then it's qualified and qualified some more. And I think that's how human life is. You know, um, we have a point of view, we sort of express it. And as soon as we've said it, we think that's not quite right. Uh, Maybe it's more like this. And then the next day we think about the issue some more and we think more about it. Um, So each sentence is kind of starting with something and alighting and evolving. And, and that sentence work of, of saying, look, our points of view change um, and what we believe changes. Uh, that formal work is, is I guess, uh, related to, to something which I, I remember when I was a young man about 30 years ago, I took a, uh, had an enormous cosmic good fortune of taking a creative writing class with Toni Morrison. And uh, yeah, it was one of these sort of, uh, uh, later on you think, that was really kind of winning a lottery ticket. At the time, you're thinking, oh, you know, great writer, but you don't fully appreciate just how lucky you are. And this is about 30 years ago, and, and she said in that class, um, uh, you know, try to keep your reader a half heartbeat ahead of the action of your novel so that um, they don't know what's coming next, but when it comes, it feels inevitable. Mm-hmm. And, and so your question about sentences and how they work is that. Um, if the sentences uh, can do some of the work of changing points of view and, and allowing beliefs to evolve over time, um, they're doing some of the underground work required, hopefully, for the reader to make it through the novel and have an experience that's a bit like that, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of talk about how what the bridge might be between your, your motivations from Exit West to here? Because if you go back to Exit West, 
Uh, a lot of people interpret elements of magical realism there as well. And then that book is dealing with uh, refugees and this element of, I guess, what happens to society when it has this element of disruption. There's a lot of disruption in this book as well and a little bit of magical realism as well. Um, that's a long way of saying, where did the idea from this book for this book come from? Well, at a certain level, when I was a kid, I loved science fiction and fantasy. I grew up uh, in California in the 70s for part of my childhood. And this was the era of, you know, Star Wars and Star Trek and um, Battlestar Galactica, Buck Rogers. Um, and as a young reader, I was in love with, you know, Tolkien and Frank Herbert and the great sort of science fiction and, and uh, fantasy writers. Uh, I was also, as a little kid, um, I had a, I was prone to sort of playing make-believe. I would, you know, imagine that I was a pirate or an astronaut or whatever. Just like my 10-year-old son today can sometimes be heard roaring down the uh, hall thinking he's Godzilla. <laughs> and, uh, and so I suppose that element of not quite reality has always been very tempting to me. Uh, I also think that um, it's a mistake to believe that reality actually exists. So, um, you know, the color blue or red or yellow, we know that that color doesn't actually exist. Instead, our brain is representing a, particularly, a particular reflected frequency of light and using this color as a way of signifying to us that that's what's going on. Um, and, you know, the chairs that you and I are sitting on, we know it's mostly empty space with just some atoms scattered across it. It's not really solid in, in, when you get down to looking at it closely enough. And we also know that very often we'll do things that strike us as um, you know, nasty or, or not in keeping with our characters. And we'll say, you know, I wasn't myself. But we were ourselves. It's just that the nice person, the story that we tell about ourselves turned out not to be true in that moment. Uh, so I think that we spend so much of our lives play acting reality, pretending that um, we are who we are and the world is the way it is. And when fiction very slightly tweaks that, um, it allows us to slip into something that although it feels a little bit less real, it might feel more true, mm -hmm. which is that things are not quite how they seem. And, and all the stuff that we're engaged in, a little bit of it is just pretending. That leads into race as a construct. Does Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think, you know, um, race is something that's been imagined into existence for all of us. Uh, you know, we, we arrive in a historical moment where something has been imagined. You know, it could have been that we said that, okay, people with A positive blood type and O negative blood type are fundamentally different and must be you know, treated in very different ways. But we didn't do that. Um, and we arrived at this sort of contemporary 21st century racial imagining, which is different from place to place. It's different in America from Britain and different in Britain from Pakistan. But, um, but it is imagined. Um, I mean, these things aren't like planets or waterfalls. They don't actually exist. So we're all kind of collectively participating in imagining this thing. And that's where I think is a kind of fertile space. You know, what if we were to imagine differently? What if we were trying to imagine our way out of it? Um, and, and the novel is really about that. It's, it's about, in a sense, imagining a way out of race, um, experiencing both a sense of loss, you know, for some characters for whom that's an enormous loss, but also a sense of opportunity for, you know, what might come into being that isn't in being when the novel starts. Yeah. Uh, and 
what I found to be very powerful is t towards the end of the book, not that it's a, a, again, avoiding spoilers, but you write very beautifully about the, as more and more people are changing, the memories and the memories of whiteness and the, this memory of now a distant world. Um, that's what is really powerful about this book is that where also this was quite a quite a emotional book to read having and I don't know when you created it but having witnessed actual turmoil and riots on the foot of our capital and how much there is turmoil in the streets in this book uh, was I was almost unsettling for me as a reader but still very powerful uh, can you talk about just how um, uh, maybe emotional this book was for you to write uh, and that idea of the memory of whiteness? Yeah, you know, it, it was emotional. And I think, um, uh, you know, one doesn't have to, in a sense, sympathize with a worldview or something that's being lost um, to sympathize with the feeling of loss. And um, all over the world today, we see people who feel that um, their group or their way of being is is being destabilized and in danger of being lost. And whether that's sort of a traditional Muslim perspectives in Pakistan or Britishness in Britain or, or you know, a sense of, of, of whiteness potentially in America, um, this is not a unique thing to the United States. This is something happening really in different forms all over the world. And uh, to me, it seems an inadequate response to just say, um, you know, tough luck. Um, because if we take the response of, um, you know, that's your loss, um, in a way, what we invite is a contest to say, well, um, uh, let's fight it out and to see, you know, who wins in the battle of all against all. Instead, I think it's a bit more interesting to say, uh, what if we imagine that all of these different characters are, are the heroes of their stories? Um, they imagine themselves to be the hero of a narrative with them at their center, uh, to give them the dignity of that. And then to have them experience loss in a sense, um, not, uh, not as, a, as, as, um, as a, a blessing or as, um, or as a punishment, um, but as a, as a kind of personal tragedy, uh, but a tragedy out of which uh, a new kind of growth is possible. Growth, exactly that. And the beautiful thing about this book is that the change happens. Anders has a visceral reaction early in the book, even punches a mirror uh, showing his new reflection. But as the book goes on, there is change and panic, but then growth. And then Anders is still Anders. Uh, so what you did with the idea of identity was very interesting in this book. There is loss, but Anders retains Anders. Una retains Una. Uh, I found that to be very, um, very touching. Well, well, Anders, in a sense, becomes almost more Anders. Right. Um, I mean, the interesting thing about it is it, the, the book is a love story, and it's, 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 it's perhaps three love stories. It's a love story between Anders and Una, who um, begin kind of like they're having a fling. They've both experienced loss in their lives, but they're, they're drawn together. They're, they're dated in high school, but it starts off with not a very serious relationship. But as Anders changes... Una begins to see him properly and recognize him properly and actually understand who he is in a way that's attractive to her. And something similar happens for Anders with Una. But at the same time, there's uh, two other love stories, which is Anders' love for his father and Una's love for her mother, 
who both belong to an older generation that's grappling with this in a different way. And, uh, and so each of these characters, in a sense, is able to see each other in a way more clearly um, and, uh, and get to a place which is a deeper understanding of, of who the other person is. Uh, so, so I suppose what we would imagine is that somebody has changed in the course of the novel, become a different kind of person. Uh, maybe a little bit of that is also happening. But also people are free to be seen as the people they actually are in a different way than they were when the novel begins. Yes. Uh, and I so I'll let you go, but I'll just end on this note by saying that, uh, yes, I'm mentioning panic and I'm mentioning turmoil in the streets, etc. But as this book goes on and it goes to its beautiful conclusion, it's a very hopeful book. I don't know if that's an accurate word for it, but it felt very hopeful. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, for me, I think something that's very important is that if we um, don't allow ourselves an opportunity to be hopeful about the future, then we sort of say, okay, well, let's be pessimistic. And that only leaves one opportunity, which is let's go back to the past. Um, and so I think for all of us, it's important to try to imagine an optimistic future that, that we could actually get to, because um, it's only by doing that that we save ourselves from a kind of social, societal depression um, and a vulnerability to people who say, you know, let's go back to the golden age of Islam, or let's go back to Britain before immigration, or America 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, I think those are dangerous pasts to, to fetishize and to think that they were so great. Uh, but but unless you can unless you can imagine your way to something in the future that's attractive, the only opportunity really is to go back. Beautiful. This book, uh, The Last White Man, has a remarkable gracefulness to it, and I'm really glad you wrote it. I really appreciate the chance to read it, and I appreciate the chance to, to chat with you, Mosin. Thank you very much. Take care. Okay. Bye. And that was my chat with Mohsen Hamid, the author of bestsellers like Exit West and The Reluctant Fundamentalist. But we were talking about his brand new book out this week called The Last White Man, which just like Kafka's Gregor opens up with the transformation immediately happening. And then the rest of the book is how do we respond to that? How do we now move forward after this change? Magical realism, science fiction, either way, an amazing book. And I implore you to check it out. We really appreciate the chance to chat with Mohsen Hamid. We'll have links for you to find more information about his books in the show notes. You have listened to another episode of A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast. It's brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. Appreciate the local musician, John Duffy, who provides us our intro and outro music. If you want to support this podcast, you could go to ferndalefriends.org or please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. We'll be back next week with more. Thanks for listening.